Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of MathMax Teacher Educators. The hosts are Ava Thanheiser, Dusty Jones, and me, I'm Joel Amidon. Today, we are talking with Teddy Chow, who is an assistant professor of MathMax education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at the Ohio State University. We are talking to Teddy because... He's interesting. His research is at the cross-section of technology, mathematics education, issues of equity and diversity, and we cannot wait to talk to him about his work teaching math teachers. Welcome, Teddy. Do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks. I, you know, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor. I, I'm a big fan of all of you all and of the podcast, too, that since it's been on for the last, uh, I guess, almost the last uh, semester. So, my name is Teddy Chow. You might have heard of me. I also go by Theodore Chow professionally. I have done a lot of stuff in the world of math education. Mainly, I focus on issues of equity within elementary education. And I just got an NSF career award to study digital Woo-hoo. math stories. On. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm in that space where I'm like, oh, crap, I got to figure this out. So I hope it's cool that a lot of the, for me, a lot of the, this podcast is me asking you all questions on how to how to run my grant. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no Can problem. you say a little bit about the grant? Yeah, it's about digital math storytelling. So the idea is, you know, we I think as math educators, we all know how the amazing mathematical uh, knowledge that children hold. And oftentimes that mathematical knowledge, particularly for children from minoritized communities or children of color, it's not necessarily legitimized within our math curriculum or even within the assessments that we use, but it's amazing. I'm trying to really connect a lot of my background in film and media with the ability for children to tell amazing narratives and stories. So just a quick example is I did a pilot study in which a little fourth grader, sorry, not a little, a, four, a fourth grade girl made a video about the intricate mathematics that happens when her mom and her aunts cook dinner together and how they're able to make seven dishes appear hot and ready for a 16 person dinner. And, you know, it's just a quick video and she made it very much like TikTok, Snapchat style. And it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen because it really showcased her family members as mathematicians doing math in cooking. And so I think that there's a lot of power in children being able to tell their own narratives and particularly tell their own narratives around the mathematics that they see and they interact with every day. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so you, you kind of brushed on it in your intro there, but how did you get to this place now? So back us up, Teddy, a little bit. How did you start teaching math teachers and why? And, and, and again, even backing up to your, your background in, in film. Yeah. So uh, my undergraduate degree is in film and media studies and also in computer science engineering. And I think I was always fascinated by this idea of visual storytelling, the idea that we are creatures in which the things that we remember, the things that we hold on to, the histories, not just the official histories, but the histories of the people, of the communities, are always told in story format. And you know, here in the United States, we follow this Eurocentric script, which you know largely comes from Shakespeare and other of the canon uh, works of what a story should sound like, what a story should feel like. And so I was always fascinated with how that transformed into a medium, being able to process and talk about them visually, you know, in filmmaking and television and now short form videos. That what the, There's a whole story about how I moved from that world into becoming a middle school teacher. But a lot of it was just, I was working as a computer programmer at these dot-coms and I loved the teaching aspect, I love the working uh, with community aspect. I hated the actual programming and working in technology. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really get started in my 
teaching math teachers until my first year as a doctoral student at University of Texas. I was working on a project called SimCalc with Susan Emson, and it was an amazing project. There's a lot of really great people focusing on how to bring these ideas of calculus using a technology called SimCalc from Jim Caput's group, and then really just using them with uh, sixth and seventh grade teachers. And I remember I was a first-year doctoral student. I just come right out of the classroom. And next thing I know, helping to run p- uh, professional development, or I'm going into, into classrooms to observe, and the teacher would be like, I really don't know how to do this. Do you mind modeling this lesson for me? And I'd be like, sure, why not? I think that's when I realized that there's a lot of fear in teaching a lesson the right way or teaching a lesson the wrong way or how mathematics should be taught and shouldn't be taught. It's when I saw that as a professional developer or as a researcher who's coming in to like help them make sure they stay close to what we think is important, there's actually this whole spectrum of the teaching moves that you can do, of the the questions you can ask, of the backgrounds of the classrooms that you're in, of the neighborhood and the community that I felt as a teacher, I never really got a grasp on. So I really was fascinated by this whole aspect of working with teachers. And then after that, I started teaching the elementary math methods courses at University of Texas and had a really fun time learning the intricacies of how to work with pre-service teachers. Nice. So, you know, the next question we'd like to ask is, what would you, have, I mean, so you, you talk about your whole history there. So what would you have liked to known when you started teaching math teachers? You know, we all think about our first year teaching and, and, and how horrible it was. And I think about like my first few years working in professional development and how I was so captured in this way of framing teachers and the work that teachers do. You know, I, I think a lot of us who work in mathematics education research, sometimes we go in with an agenda of what we need to happen in a classroom. We have this, this, these measures that we want our, our teachers to stick to a script and really implement with a high fidelity what the intervention is or what we want to do. I fell in that trap my first year. And I, I think I really, I came in telling, you know, these veteran teachers what I needed to see. I came in talking to, at them as opposed to to them. And I wish that I had known better that you have to listen to teachers. They are professionals. They are amazing people. They have an incredible skill set. And especially when you're working with veteran teachers who volunteer to sign up for a project or sign up for professional development or give up a Saturday to work with you, they're not doing that because they have nothing better to do, right? They're actually giving up a significant amount of time. It's a big sacrifice for them to come work with you. So what I would have liked to know is, you know, really take time to listen and check in with teachers and and be cool with them in the same way that you would with students. And in terms of advice that I received, when I was a graduate student, I had a a graduate student assistantship with the Dana Center. And uh, Uri Schreisman, who was the executive director of the Dana Center, told me, he goes, you have to treat teachers like the professionals they are because that's what keeps them coming back. And I remember in the professional developments we did, he made sure that we did them at hotel conference rooms, uh, conference centers. He made sure we had catering. He made sure that the name tags were printed out and ready for the teachers. You know that when they came to an event, they really felt like they were being treated the way they should. They were really treated well. And I think that resonated with me is it changes the whole tenure of the way that we work and operate when teachers feel like they're being treated as professionals. That's awesome. I mean, just, yeah, even the hey, we're honoring your time. And like, you know, the little things that matter, like that you just laid out, you know, someone like, wow, you could really save a lot of money. But like, how, if we're treating them like professionals, how better do you think that they're going to professionally take up what you're offering or the conversations that are going to happen? That's, I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty amazing, the piece of advice. What advice would you give to someone else starting out in this role that comes to you like, hey, 
Dr. Chow, what do you got to say? I think 2020s, a very different era than when I started off as a, as a math teacher educator, even as a math teacher. I think the immediate advice I would give to anyone is get on Twitter and really curate your professional identity, like really focus on making sure that you, you know, and I hate to use the word brand because it's so corporate, but, you know, make sure that your identity as a math teacher educator or someone who operates in the sphere of education is one that you're very careful about what it looks like and feels like. And so that the things that you tweet out, the the interactions you have, people know who you are. People remember you. People understand the complexity of the, the questions you're asking, the things you're retweeting, and the things that you offer to other teachers. It's amazing to me how much our field has really shifted in terms of social networks, but also just the ability to reach out and have and have really deep and meaningful conversations with people across the country, across the globe. My advice is all the things that took me years to do, create relationships with teachers, right? Sometimes it takes a year or two, right? Really get to understand and know the complexity of, of a school district. And you know, that takes a year or two. Read up and, and learn what's going on in terms of a particular curriculum, right? That, th- that can take a while. All these things are accelerated rapidly, particularly through things like Twitter, <laughs> in which you can really get to know, you know, how the parents and teachers feel about a particular school just by reading through some tweets. You can really, like this podcast that you all do, you can really get to know a lot of the intricacies of what it means to do certain things, right? Like teaching online, and, and moving your instruction into virtual space by listening to some podcasts. So that's my advice is get online. You want me to Venmo that payment? <laughs> Thank you. We, we really appreciate it. Um, that's really, uh, I mean, thinking and stepping back and thinking about even just uh, where we were at the beginning of 2020 to now. But I mean, so much has changed. And just thinking about how do we participate within there and, and being agents within that. And speaking of... Uh, participating. Ava and Dusty, anything to uh, that caught your interest in what Teddy has uh, brought to the table so far? Yeah, I'll jump in. So Teddy told me this a few years ago, get on Twitter, and I'm still struggling with that, though I'm working at it. But I've noticed I've started a website that I really put a lot of stuff on so people can access the things that I have developed. And that has led to a lot of conversation And I'm okay on Facebook. I still need help, Teddy, with how to work Twitter in the way that you do. So I'm wondering if you could give a few examples or advice pieces for people who are not yet very proficient at Twitter of how to go about starting. Yeah, (laughs) sure, Ava. So I'll preface this by saying, for me, every year I sort of come up with a theme that's going to define my year that I try to work towards. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it really helps ground me spiritually. This year for 2020, my theme was disconnect. So I actually tried to act to be less on social media and less on Twitter. And this was probably the worst year to try to do that as we were all forced to disconnect <laughs> physically. And I realized I had no idea what was going on. So my Twitter game has actually been pretty lacking, I would say, these last few months. But, you know, I by no means a, a Twitter connoisseur or expert. I think what I like about Twitter is that it works with the way my mind works easily and that it's, if you're looking for organization, if you're looking for things to be laid out well, it's not gonna be there. But if you're looking to be able to jump in and out of conversations and you're looking for just people being raw about things and also being able to sort of, I would say the thing about Twitter I love is being able to hover, right? Being able to pick up on conversations that might actually be in-group conversations. So it's not to jump into like the differences between Facebook groups and Twitter, but you know, Facebook has some amazing stuff. And, and, and I see all three of you actively on the, the many groups that we're involved with on Facebook. 
My problem with a lot of those is those are private conversations, right? You have to be in the group or you have to be invited to the group and it's a curated membership. Whereas Twitter, you just pop in the hashtag and instantly you're there. And there's oftentimes you can see some really intimate conversations that people are having, but they're having them publicly. So you can hear what's happening and what's going on, right? I have to shout out the amazing state that I'm in, Ohio, for having the, the, the Ohio Council of Teachers of Mathematics, which is our state version of NCTM, is really, really good about hosting Twitter chats, about really having conversations on Twitter and using Twitter as a great tool for connecting teachers and also connecting teacher educators. And because of my six years here in Ohio and working with them and curating some of their Twitter chats, I've really learned a lot of it is just about having really good hashtags. A lot of it is about having these weekly chats that you check into. A lot of it is about, you know, just uh, reading stuff and then retweeting it and then seeing where the conversation goes. Can you give me an idea of what sort of classes you teach, what level or what content the the teachers are at? I could say in the fall coming up or in the past spring or or just in general. Sure. Thanks. So I mainly work with our elementary uh, teacher education program. So here at Ohio State, our elementary program is nice in that it's it's an early childhood and elementary program. So it's pre-K all the way through fifth grade. And the, the, I've been teaching a master's and undergraduate level methods course, a math methods course for them since I've been here. So about six years now. I also teach doctoral and master's level courses on equity and diversity, on critical issues in a STEM curriculum, and particularly in use the use of technology, you know, using and building mobile apps and developing technology for use in STEM education. Cool. Thanks. So, Teddy, what what makes a good day for you in your profession? Can you give some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, a good day really involves spending time with my family. I know you all have kids and, and, and spend a lot of time with your family. If I can have time with my family in a day, when I can have time really involved in some deep thinking in a day, and when I can have time being involved in some sort of fun learning experience, those are good days. And what I mean by fun learning experience, it's sometimes watching my own kids pick up something or, or work through a problem. Sometimes it's being in a classroom and just watching a teacher do something really cool and taking a risk or listening to a kid explain something in ways that they're, you can see that they're explaining to themselves in a way that they, they understand for the first time. Those are great days. <laughs> oh, and um, anytime there's lots of really good food. we've been uh you know in quarantine we're we're here together and we got i got three kids and Mm -hmm. we play a lot of games and we picked up card game with some logic and it's got some uh some logic to it so where kid has a hand and it's my eight-year-old who has this hand and all of a sudden he starts talking big like and we we like to do that Mm -hmm. in games we're like you know maybe a little trash talking during our games and all of a sudden he's talking like i'm like why what is he doing and like he and like at the end he and he cleared out the he got all the hands for himself and he's like oh, i knew after you played that card and he laid it out like how he knew and all this it's almost like a proof he just said <laughs> and it was like the most beautiful thing and i'm like can you do that again and i just record you but like yeah it's just family time but beautiful like amazing learning is just like what you said that i agree with that that's some good things yeah but so with that, if you're going to have family time, you, you got to, you still got to get things done. So Teddy, how, how do you get things done? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the podcast. Folks. Yeah. <laughs> Honesty. I know. I mean, to be honest, right? Like I, um, my 10 year vote came in this, this month. And so Yay. it looks good. Yeah. Thanks. And so there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I got it. And there's also a part of me like, 
how the heck did that happen? Right? Like I, <laughs> right? I think all of us are, and I know it's not just me, right? But like we live in this space in which we focus on the things we haven't done yet or the things, we, the other things we wish we had more time to do. And we actually don't realize how much we're getting done. I fall in this trap where all I can think about is like, all the things I wish I was getting done, and then all the ways in which I'm not keeping up with the, all the things I plan for myself. But I'd say what I found works well is having a regular weekly plan, having strategic plans. I try to do a strategic plan every semester. I find that usually around the eight or nine week mark, I have to completely shift my what my plan was for the semester. I have a checklist that I look at daily, and then if I make it through most of it, I'm happy. If not, then you know I realize I'm falling behind. I realized that I got to sleep. I think early on in my teaching career, I would go to sleep, I'd sleep for five hours and then just, you know, wake up in the morning and teach. I think I realized that that's not good, right? I, I, I got to sleep a lot. And daily journaling and prayer. I think it's really important to, for me, is to keep touch with who I am spiritually and also who I want to be. And I found that all of that has led to realizing what's important for myself, wanting to maintain physical fitness through exercise, wanting to surround myself with community. And if that community isn't there, learning how to build it slowly and with other people you can invite into your community to create that world. And then all that ends up helping you love yourself more. And I feel like for me, that's been the journey is really learning to love myself. And when I find that I'm doing those things, magical things happen, things work out in ways that you don't expect. But it's a lot. I realize as I'm listening to these things out, like it's a lot more than I thought it'd be of just like showing up to professional development and like teaching a lesson to teachers. No, that's good. It's a nice holistic view of that question. I appreciate that. So where do you, you know, and Teddy, I know I look up to you as someone who is fairly savvy and you talked about your background. So where do you go online to uh, find resources? There's so many good places right now. I, I think for me, one of the problems is there's actually too much, you know, like one of the weird things that happened during the quarantine, right? Is like so many math educators, so many great educators were wanting to help and put their stuff online that I think our field got a little bit saturated in that I, I can't find everything I want now, right? And so it, it, it requires a lot of savvy, right? To be able to figure out where to go. I used to really trust, some people call it MitBoss or, you know, the MTBOS uh, hashtag that's changed over the years and that it's just become like inundated with people trying to promote their stuff. So I used to say Twitter was really good, but now you have to, you have to be careful about what you're finding and, and, and looking at at Twitter. I think that this is where our organizations within our field really help. I think, you know, yeah, like you all, like this is an AMTE podcast, like AMTE has always put out quality stuff, whether it's the publications, whether it's the newsletter or this podcast, or even the, the MTE journal that Ava and I were a part of for a while. At least I know that that's real, that that's been vetted and then it's good. I can, I can hand it to a teacher or I can hand it off. I'd also want to shout out some really, really great math teacher educators out there who've been writing a lot of great texts. Like I saw that you just did an episode with Manny Jansen. I mean, she, anytime she posts something, I know it's going to be good. Like she's, she curates stuff really well. I've gotten so much mileage out of uh, Tracy Zagar's book, How to Be the Math Teacher You Wish You Had. And also just like all the stuff that she has been curating at Stenhouse Publishers. Like it's good stuff. And that's the stuff that I know that I can hand directly to a teacher that I work with. Whether they actually sit down and read it or not, at least they have something to to read and look at that doesn't just seem like it's coming up, like I'm making all this stuff up <laughs> when I talk to them, right? That it's actually other people saying the same things. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and, you know, thank you again for mentioning our podcast. Another uh, 
another contribution to the Teddy Chow Food <laughs> Fund. But I mean, you're talking about building community and like getting those connections to folks that you're like, yeah, you know what? That voice, there's there's folks that I'm hearing out there that are offering some good stuff out there and then connect, you know, creating those connections. You know, as more technology comes out, it's like it more comes down to the human connections. I don't know. It's it's that it can break down some of those physical barriers because we don't necessarily like we're doing with this podcast. You don't necessarily have to be in the same room with each other to make those connections. That's actually a question that I have for you all is I hate to be an echo chamber. I think a lot of us in this work, we end up citing each other or finding resources, the people that we know that we met because it's, it's good stuff and we're all working in the same field. I'm often worried about, you know, my inability to find things from outside my own networks, right? From people who are not online from people who might be in other countries in which the way that they approach math teaching is so different and the way that they build community is so different. You know, how do I hear those stories? How do I hear about the great work that they're doing? That, you know, that's part of why I'm doing my NSF grant on storytelling, particularly within communities of color. But I worry a lot that what we're doing in math teacher education still very much comes from one particular, like highly educated PhD research university based frame. And that's not the only way I think that we can approach this game. I am super excited about the story grant that you have. There is, I think, a lot of work in the field in general now to look at who is in power, who has power, and who has power shapes all the stories. So I can't wait to see what comes from your grant to help give some voice to people who have not had voice. There's a book that I've been reading currently that just came out. It's called Data Feminism that really does a nice job of showing that. And Lori Rubel's work is highlighted mm -hmm. in there. Okay. And just this notion of let's move away from the standard way of collecting data and analyzing it. And let's look at how to share data that maybe hasn't been looked at. To me, that's really exciting. And it's very exciting that you're doing this because you have all this background I don't know why the film, like, I feel like I knew it and I forgot it. So it was new for me again today, but that's really cool. So less a question, more just pondering that as we're moving into a new era, hopefully, that gives voice to people who haven't had voice, we might need to reconsider how to represent things and also potentially how to publish things. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for that insight. And, and one thing that I, I think that I've, I've learned over the years, I used to use this term of giving voice or giving voice to my, my students. And, you know, Lee Patel, it's not about giving voice, right? It's the people we work with, the people who, who sometimes are marginalized, they've always had a voice. It's about stepping back and opening up avenues, right? That we who have privilege and have power can open, right? So that their voices can be heard. It's not up to us to give voice or to curate their voice. It's rather like what I've learned from in my work is sometimes I do more by just stepping back or stepping aside. Yeah, focusing on the listening. And, you know, speaking of which, I, uh, Lori Rubel was somebody who I met like in my first year of teaching <laughs> when I was in my teacher education program. And, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah it was it's amazing. You know, I think she was just starting her career as a professor and I think back on like, you know, people you meet early on that had an instrumental impact in, in just helping you think 
outside of what you think you're supposed to do. And so I love seeing her get her recognition for the amazing work that she's been doing, particularly with like, the spatial justice work. So Teddy, what is uh, something that you've been really excited about? So today is, uh, it's, it's the end of June, 2020. And we've been living in this world, I think for the last two or three weeks, that have that have had massive amounts of Black Lives Matter demonstrations globally. And I think it's a moment that I never thought would happen in which I've been to some of the demonstrations here in Columbus, Ohio, and they are majority white. They are these beautiful, peaceful demonstrations of love in which it's it doesn't feel like it's as racially uh, dichotomous. It, it really is people coming together to recognize injustice and to do something about it. I think we're in a place that I'm excited about because I feel like we might finally be ready to have a conversation that we haven't been able to have for 400 years as a country, right? Towards really talking about addressing the sin of slavery, towards really having honest conversations about things like reparations, really having conversations about apologies for not just Black America, but for colonialism, slavery, and this entire system of plunder that is so part of our capitalistic system, and yet is never really acknowledged in the way that its violent repercussions you know, exist in all the work that we do, right? So much of the work that we do as teacher educators, as educators, is really about the inequities happening within our school system. I think all of us who work in math recognize the gatekeeping role that math plays and the ways that you know math is connected to power and that you either have access to it or you're pushed out of it. I'm excited that in my work as an educator, I've been thinking about issues of equity for so long. I'm excited about maybe not having to think about it. <laughs> Right, that that we we might be moving towards a moment in which it's so embedded into our everyday discourse and the ways that we think about things that maybe I always think like I would just love to think and do math all day long sometimes, and yet I can and I can't because we also have to talk about these issues of equity. But could we live in a world in which those issues are front and center in everything we do, so that we can have like. I can go to a math teacher circle and just focus on math and not feel like issues of power are not a part of that conversation. Yeah. Just thinking about that and like thinking about all the different uh, positive things that are happening and, and, you know, you're, and also thinking about the conversations that are happening and people being, people being able to have conversation maybe that they haven't been able to have before and the perspectives that are able to be highlighted. It's I'm excited about that too. So, but what do you do for, for fun, Teddy? So how do, you, how do you balance things out? You mentioned a few things before, but what are some other things that do? Uh, you mentioned family time? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time with my family. I spend a lot of time with, with the kids. I spend a lot of time cooking. For those of you who follow my Instagram, it's mainly just you know me cooking and, and taking pictures of it, pretending that it looks good. <laughs> do it for the gram yeah that's right i you know since the quarantine started i've playing i've been playing a lot more video games than i ever have before that's been fun playing playing uh things like animal crossing with the kids and doing some reading joel you and i had a conversation about this is like i can't believe how much time i spend coaching kids sports like i did not think that as a parent that this would be my whole life but you know pre-quarantine it's like that was my whole weekends <laughs> yeah but the one thing i really do for fun and this is not really quantifiable is build community it's not easy to do 
and it requires everything. And at the same time, it actually doesn't require anything. It actually should feel natural. I think a lot of what I spend my energy on is reaching out, talking, having conversation, being present, listening. And it's only in the last year that I realized that that all that work actually is work. It's not just something that I could pretend, you know, I, I should wish I was, I was spending my time being more productive. Like that's work. And that's actually work that I find extremely fulfilling and fun. Yeah. I just, it is the, the time of the uh, quarantine and, and this where you're physically away from people. And I can't think of a word more that I point to now that I value more than that of community. And like, I just like the way that you, you know, it is work. It is things that you need to do, but the things that you can point to probably throughout your career and throughout your life that you can point to community. And it's because of that. You mentioned Lloyd Rebell, and I was just thinking to myself, she was a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers. And um, <laughs> she she was someone that I could reach out to. She was a part of the diversity and math education group. And I was thinking about writing a career grant that didn't go through, but the, the thinking was good to go through it. And she was someone that read my draft and talked to me on the phone and was a mentor to me. And I didn't really ever have a relationship with her outside of just, we both went to the University of Wisconsin. We didn't overlap at time at all. And just thinking about that, the community that she was willing to extend to me and able to then how can I then take that responsibility to extend that to others? I mean, I, don't know, I just, that really just touched a nerve with me. I'm, I'm just glad you highlighted that. Yeah. Lori's amazing. I'm glad you talked about that. And, and I think it extends beyond just the Badgers, <laughs> just, just beyond Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. No, just kidding. <laughs> but also, I mean, you know, you mentioned also coaching kids sports too. I mean, that's, I always pointed that too as another way within my local community, like that people knew me as coach. Joel. When I go into schools, like, Hey, that's coach Joel. And like, having to build relationships, not only between kids, but also between families and circles that might not normally overlap. But that was another place on the, on the sidelines, be able to, for people to come together. And that's something we're missing right now. And so, yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I mean, I know you're going to have an outstanding website for your, your new grant where you're going to share some stuff, I'm assuming, but anything <laughs> else to, to promote? I made this web series about a year and a half ago called Radical Cram School. It's, mainly about Asian American children having difficult conversations. It started with my daughter coming home one day saying that, hey, sometimes I feel like I don't want to be Chinese. And me realizing, you know, like the pressure of fitting in, the hurt of not, of always standing out, it's real. And so as opposed to just like having a conversation again, where she has to listen to me talk about the history of Asian Americans in the United States, I said, let's, let's talk as a group with maybe other friends. And that led to this web series called Radical Cram School, in which we brought in Christina Wong, who's this amazing performance artist. We brought in puppets, songwriters to make a series of short videos that not just Asian American parents, but all, you know, all parents who want to have these sometimes difficult conversations about race and justice in the United States can just watch an episode and then talk about. So we've made two seasons of it. each season, about six episodes each. And we have a discussion guide, a user guide that just came out this week. And I tried very hard to make sure the discussion guide, you know, it's, it's, it's a work in progress is also connected to the current Black Lives Matter demonstrations that are happening right now so that we can really, particularly for Asian American children, to really have a space to understand how deeply connected the fight for Black lives is to Asian American lives here in the United States. So that's something that I've been really proud of, and it's been, it was fun to do. 
And it's actually completely unconnected <laughs> to my research. Yeah. And Teddy, <laughs> I'll say I stumbled across Radical Cram School and really like it and had no idea that you were involved with that. So that just is super awesome. Oh, cool. Thanks, Dusty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to go check it out. Like, that's great. Yeah, it was, it's fun. And I hate to say this, right? But like, I feel like what we do, like making videos and making stuff for kids is so fun. I kind of wish that our field would stop writing these articles. <laughs> Let's, let's just let's just go make stuff and have fun. <laughs> nice, yeah, it's beautiful. I, mean, I wonder if like there's some ideas out there that you know people have, like you know, of all the different folks that we've talked to, or you know, other folks out there that that you've shared this and like they have like well, I always wanted to do that, and so this is encouragement. Go do that. Go do go make some stuff. That's that's awesome. <laughs> Anything else uh, from Ava or Dusty that? we should uh, address with Teddy before we let him go. Thank you, Teddy. Yeah, thanks so much, Teddy. It's It's been a delight talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Ava. Thanks, Dusty. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Teddy. And thanks again for uh, listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you are able to implement something that you just heard and take an opportunity to interact with each other, build that community with other math teacher educators. Hello, listeners of the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. We have some big news. Are you ready? The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is starting a summer book club. What better way to grow as teachers of math teachers than to engage in some professional learning together? And we would love for you to join us. In June, we're going to be reading Rough Draft Math, Revising to Learn by Amanda Jansen. In July, we are reading High School Mathematics Lessons to Explore, Understand, and Respond to Social Injustice by Robert Berry, Basil Conway, Brian Lawler, John Staley, and colleagues. The plan for the book club is to read the book throughout the month and host weekly interactions on Twitter and Instagram around the chapters for the week. At the end of each month, we will have a podcast that discusses what we learned from the book and how we can apply what we learned to improving how we teach math teachers. We also might be joined by some authors. In short, we are excited. We hope you are as well. Follow us on social media at Teach Math Teach on Twitter and at Teaching Math Teaching on Instagram to stay up to date on how to participate in the Teaching Math Teaching Summer Book Club. Thanks again, as always, for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and we hope that you're able to implement something that you hear in the podcast and take an opportunity, like this Summer Book Club, to interact with other math teacher educators.